0: We've having Vision Month. If you're just joining in or it's your first time, we've been having Vision Month. It's just, feel like after two years of like, let's survive, it's like, wham, we need some vision again. We need to put vision back before us. The Bible says that without vision, people perish. Or when people can't see what God is doing, that they stumble all over themselves. And so we've been putting this vision before us as a church, saying we want to be a people who are about pursuing the way of Jesus and playing our part in his story. And I love the simplicity of the vision, that we want to be people individually, we want to be people collectively, that when people look at us, what are we about? We're pursuing the way of Jesus, and we're playing our part in his story. And then we've been talking about, well, we don't just need vision, that's sort of what we're aiming for, but about values. And I don't know if you realize, but we need to live with values as people, convictions, Things that are non-negotiables in our lives, when we have them, they act like riverbanks and they, they sort of stir the flow, they steer the flow of what God's doing with us. Convictions help us to know when to be flexible and when to stand. And when we don't have convictions, we will find ourselves being flexible at the wrong times and maybe even standing and dying on the wrong hills at times. And so having well-formed convictions, well-formed values is super important. And we've been talking about them week one about that. We talked about aroha, love, about how we want to be a community that measures our maturity, that measures our success, that measures um, that sort of sense of are we in the right direction by are we becoming more loving? Because that's what we believe that God is wanting to form above all else inside of us. The greatest of these is love, the scripture says. In the second week, we talked last week about rongapai, or the gospel and mission, and about how that is about like the whole story of God wrapped up and and sort of culminated in the story of Jesus, and how we want to be people about that story, who know the story, who embody the story, who witness to the story, and are playing our part, you know, are engaged in what God is doing in this world, and you know, last week's announcement is obviously a a way of us living out that value. And this week, we're gonna talk about our third value, but just as a way of introduction to it, to frame it up, the value is actually answering a question. And the question is this, how does God change us to be more like Jesus? How does God change us to be more like Jesus? Because there are many people who are highly committed to Jesus for a long time in their life, but don't necessarily become more like Jesus. That your commitment or your allegiance does not automatically mean transformation. And so today's values addressing that wrestle of how do we not just be highly committed, like I'm a Christian and I'm always a Christian, but how do we actually be people that become like Christ? Since that's the definition of being a Christian. And here it is, spoiler alert, it's tikanga wairua or spiritual practice. And that's going to be our third value as a community, that we want to be people about spiritual practices. We want to be people growing in them, exploring in them, developing them. When we, when we know what's non-negotiable, that we have spiritual practices in our lives, because this is about how God actually transforms us. Like many people in this room, We've all got our own journey with spiritual practices to some degree or another. Some people in here, you're you're just like, yes, finally, we're talking about this. And you just have such a rich life of spiritual practices and probably the majority of people are like, oh no, something else to feel guilty about not doing. Uh, You know, there's this like, we're just, we're in this, we're all in different parts of the journey and that's okay. Today, what I hope is that we understand the point of them we understand why the scripture speaks about them, and maybe we get inspired a little bit to go learn a little bit more about them and try some different things that maybe we haven't thought of as spiritual practices before. Because what do all mature followers of Jesus have in common? Spiritual practices. You won't ever find somebody that's followed the Lord well over the decades, become more like Jesus, as an example of God-like character to people that doesn't have rich spiritual practices. And the same, the opposite could be true. What's common for people who are drifting away, for people who are barely engaged, for people who's, you know, not that there's anything wrong with questioning and trying to pull things apart, but whose questioning is actually leading them to live a life that less glorifies God rather than more glorifies God. You know, what, where people start disengaging and serving in church, what's common normally among people like that? A lack of personal spiritual practices, and uh, so we need them. you know if you you know often people like get really involved in church for a time in their life, and then if they don't actually develop personal spiritual practices, it's just a matter of time before an offense happens, and that offense causes them to distance themselves and that distance over time it's sort of like they might say, I have a faith, but that faith becomes quite fruitless in themselves into the world around them. But the, uh, the key in that is that we can't let our doing for God outgrow our ability to learn to be with God, to actually live from that place with Him. And so we need spiritual practices. The verse we're going to be in, in today, just three verses, nice and simple today. We're just going to go deep into three verses. 1 Timothy 4.7, if you've got a Bible here, you can get there, scribble over these verses, underline them if they're not already underlined. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.7, have nothing to do irreverent, silly myths. Train yourself. That just feels like, have nothing to do with the internet. Uh, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance. Shall we read it again? Just so that it's like set in your mind. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. In every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, the saying is Trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We're going to pull it apart. We're going to dive into it. And I think the place we should start with is what is godliness? What is godliness? In, in uh, Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he goes, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, uh, godliness, and self-control. To me, when I read that, it just sounds like all the words are the same thing. Love, joy, peace, kindness, summed up, and goodness, I would assume godliness is just those things, why it's like a summary word, but it's not, it's not. So as we've dived into this, it's like, what is godliness? Because it's not the quality of being like God, which is what you think the word would mean. It's not actually the word godly, this word is not about our character, it's not about our holiness, it's not about our perfection. The Greek word that we translate as godliness is Eusebia. Eusebia is probably on the screen. Eusebia. And it it literally means well-directed reverence. So it's not about whether or not you reflect God. It's about your attitude or your manner, your way of behaving towards God. It's actually not about an internal quality. Godliness is about an external way of living that allows for internal qualities to be formed. And I can show you this in the scripture. Uh, There's a bunch of references that will come up on the screen. You can take a photo and look at them uh, later if you like. But 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 says that we are to live a peaceful and quiet life with this Eusebia, with this godliness being dignified in every way. So we should aim to live the type of life where we can just get about this Eusebia, this godliness, this attitude, this way of behaving externally. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, it says that it's possible to have this eusebia, this godliness, in an appearance, but it's actually not the real thing. So that's how we know it's not holiness, because if you are holy, you just are holy. But it says that it's possible to look like you're godly. It's possible to ha- see like, look like you're doing the right things. You go into church, you say some prayers, you read your Bible, you give, you whatever, but it's actually not coming from the right place, we learn in the scripture. In Second Peter 1 verse 5, it's talking about how you need to add to your knowledge of Jesus, uh, you know, and it goes through these things and it results in love. But in the, in the list of all the things you're supposed to make every effort to add to your life is this word, Eusebia, you're supposed to add godliness to your life. And actually it's the bridge from your knowledge of Christ in the, in the list to becoming a loving person actually becoming that godliness is the bridge and it says make every effort to add to it so it stops your knowledge of God becoming unfruitful and unproductive so it's this sort of the idea here Um, in first Timothy 6 verse 11 it says that we're told to pursue it it says as for you a person of God flee these things referring to sins things that don't behaviors that don't honor God and pursue righteousness godliness which but hate, we've already talked about what that means, an attitude and a manner, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And in First Timothy 6 verse 3, if you're still following along, it says that, um, that there's a type of teaching, a false teaching, a not full gospel that actually results in godliness not being formed in people. And when I look at the world of Christianity, if godliness is our attitude, a manner of, it's sort of like our religious behaviors, there would have to be some incorrect teaching because in our churches, there's huge amounts of people that do not have practices and habits of godliness. That could be the conclusion we can make. And we could make it for lots of different reasons. Maybe that we overemphasize the love of God while underemphasizing the holiness of God we want one side of the coin without the other so it skews how we see god maybe we could suppose it's about you know our teachings on grace which are that god like god empowers us that god's gift of salvation is free and it cannot be earned lack the proper context that that doesn't mean that we don't live our lives with effort it just means that we don't earn things but sometimes we can throw out the whole idea of being intentional because we, we were so, our way that we see grace is maybe just a little bit lopsided. Or maybe, you know, we talk a lot about the abundant life with God, life to the full with God, but we don't talk a lot about suffering with Jesus. And so we're sort of like, we're skewing our perspectives. Or maybe it's just really that through individualism, we still see ourselves as God. And when we meet God, we just realize we got a supernatural servant to all of our needs. And sometimes we can relate with God that way and so we don't see the point in godliness. Or I had other, you know, these are just me supposing things. Individualism, materialism, and shallow theology for many people have gotten together and made a baby that they call Christianity. But it's a type of Christianity. It's not at the heart of the gospel. I would say, I would sum it up like this, that somewhere along the way, our modern thinking of living our life with the Lord got too influenced by this statement. It's a relationship, not a religion. It's on bumper stickers. It's on Instagram-like things. It's like, you know, it's a relationship, not a religion. And we started talking about two things incorrectly, and so we've raised a whole generation of Christians that don't understand the value of religious practice. And so... Let me just unpack that. Firstly, relationship and religion are not opposites, as if you can only have one of them. They're not competing against each other. In fact, the definition of religion is this. It's the belief and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. That sounds like what we're doing. It sounds like when somebody says, are you religious, you should say yes, not no. No, like, no, no, it's a relationship, not a religion. You're like, no, it's a a religion because all a religion is is a supernatural relationship. That's all it is. But by throwing out that word, by by that word becoming like a no-no or an icky word, and it comes up in some of our songs and I always say to the worship team, there's nothing wrong with religion. We sing this one that's like, I'm gonna abandon or throw away all my religion. You're like, what an idiot. Don't throw away your religion. That's godliness. The Because what is your religion? It's the way you practice your relationship with God. It's the way that that actually manifests in your attitude and daily behaviors or weekly rhythms or whatever these things are. Because being religious is not a bad thing. We've made it a bad thing. But if anything, we need the generation of Christians alive now to be more religious, not less if religious is just the quality of practicing your religion, which is the quality of practicing your relationship with God. That's all these things mean. But I think because that's, are you getting what I'm saying? Because it's been tainted in our minds, we think anything that's liturgical, anything that, you know, just we've got to do or anything that has the sense of organizedness or ancientness, if I'm not just feeling it, it's bad. Because if it's relationship, I should feel it. But if it's religious, that we write it off as being empty and lifeless, but that's not the case. Dallas Willard says it like this. We are saved by grace, of course, and by it alone, and not because we deserve it. That is the basis of God's acceptance of us. But grace does not mean that sufficient strength and insight will be automatically infused into our being in the moment of need. Abundant evidence for this claim is available precisely in the experience of any Christian. We only have to look at the facts. A baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than a Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without appropriate exercise in godly living. You see, we we think that Christianity is something you just have to vibe. You just gotta feel it. You just gotta flow with it. But it's not. It's something we must be trained in. And this idea of godliness, these external behaviors, these attitudes that we can practice and we can engage with that allow something of the character of God to be formed in us are the key to us becoming more like Jesus and actually pursuing his way. It's a a promise not just for life now, but for life to come. And it's important because it's at the center of what God wants to do with our lives. People all the time are like, you know, trying to search for their calling and their purpose and their thing and the, it's like, you're just looking, we're trying, what we really mean, let's just be honest, when people say, I don't know what my calling or my purpose is, they just, what they're really saying is, I don't know what to do for a job. Like, they're just trying to figure out career decisions to make, because your purpose and your calling is abundantly clear. It's not something you have to go find. It actually says that before the foundation of the world, in in, in Romans eight twenty eight, and verse 29, it makes it clear, it says it like this, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Do you hear that? That like right from the get-go, God predestined, he predetermined that everybody who would get saved from something, saved from sin, saved from judgment, saved from death, was going to get saved to something. To what? Being transformed to become more like Jesus, starting now. This is your purpose. And so when we live in it, and we live in it by practicing godliness, we're actually, it gives us life because we're finally living where we should be living. Hopefully we're following along. Are we following along? We could all agree that physical training, we go back to that verse, physical training is of some benefit, it says. We could all agree it's of some benefit, right? We know that for kids, the more active they are, the easier it is to parent them. You know, it just like it adds to their well-being, it adds to their health. We know that when you go to the gym and you get the heart rate up or you go for a run or something, we know that it increases uh, it releases endorphins in your body, the feel-good sort of things, and it also decreases cortisol, the stress hormones. So we can agree that physical training is of some benefit. We, you know, you only have to walk on the beach in summer, and you can see for those whom it has benefited, and those who are not reaping the benefits. You can see in a sport, my brother-in-law, had uh, been training for an Ironman, and two weeks ago, he ran, he, he ran cycled, and swam his Ironman. It got cancelled, but he still did it anyway on his own, because that's the sort of person he is. And so he, he, as a, he, he, he swam his three or three and a half Ks, he cycled his 180 Ks, I think it is, and then he ran his marathon, his 42 kilometers. It's like You could agree that physical training is of some benefit because if I went to just try do that right now, I'm not even gonna make the first 500 meters of the swim. So physical training has benefit, it allows you to do something that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do. And we can see the difference it makes in people's lives and especially as we age. You know, I used to be somebody that had a fast metabolism and I could eat anything and do whatever I wanted. But now at 36, I agree, physical training. Is of some benefit, okay? It's of some benefit. I will concede that. And it's amazing because this some benefit, people spent, have built billion dollar businesses off the some benefit. People have built huge subscription services to their training programs, diet industries, uh, you know, huge influences are, are on the internet. You know, people go to extraordinary lengths to receive some benefit. And some people reap the results of it. And they look good and they can run ultra marathons and they can lift more than any human being needs to ever be able to lift in the normal course of life. There's benefits, you can win prizes, you can become excellent in your field, you can achieve goals, you can get medals, you can receive fame and funding and all the things that come with those things. Humanity devotes a lot of its time and a lot of resources to something that's of some value. Imagine if we were as intentional, if we spent as much time, as much money, as much focus on the things that are not just of some benefit but of value in every way. Imagine if you just spent as much time with God as you spent at the gym how that might revolutionize every part of your life. Because training in godliness, that is training to have an attitude and a manner of life that allows God to move and transform us, has the ability to revolutionize every part of your life. That's why it's of every value. It has the ability to change the color of every part of your life. It has the ability to bless every corner of your life. When you stay sharp physically, Oh, it's not going to hurt your marriage, that's for sure. But when when you're growing in godliness, you can actually build a great marriage. You can become a loving person, a self-sacrificing person, a compromising person, an attentive person, and that can revolutionize your marriage. When you train physically, every employee, like I know when people train physically, they have more to offer at work. Absolutely. They're more focused. They've got more energy. You know, they're dealing with some of the stress. But when you are trained in godliness, you don't just have the ability to contribute more at work. You have the ability to influence your workplace for the purposes of God. When you train physically, it helps you de-stress. There's no doubt about it. Go for a run at the end of the day. It is a helpful thing. But when you train in godliness, you possess peace. And that is a whole nother thing entirely. Paul's so confident in that training for godliness is of utmost value that he, he designates his own quote as a good saying. You know, did you hear it? He's like, this is, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. It's like, I'm just gonna quote a famous person, but it's just me. You know, like he's just quoting his own words, you know, just saying, this is a legit thing. Post this, retweet it, something like that. This is um, C.S. Lewis. In the Screwtape letters, there's Uncle Screwtape, who's like an old seasoned demon, and he's writing to Wormwood, who's like a demon in training, so it's a bit of a head trip. He says this, Uncle Screwtape reproaches the apprentice demon Wormwood for permitting his patient to become a Christian, speaking of a human. Nevertheless, he says, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, that is God's camp, and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Uncle Screwtape has deep insight into the psychology of redemption. If a convert's habits remain the same, they'll realize little of the life in Christ, says Dallas Willard. This is is the thing that we're all faced with in our journeys with God, that for our entire lives, we are being shaped by the world, by a broken system, by, uh, you know, macro cultures and micro cultures that have set themselves up against the God work in this world. Individualism, materialism, selfishness, you know, sin, these things, we live and breathe it, and we've been formed by it for 36 years for 50 years to differing degrees. And just because we become like Jesus doesn't mean the habits that we've well ingrained our whole life in that area are going to change. And this is why training in godliness is about retraining your life to be submitted to something else, to be formed by something else, to be shaped by something else. I saw a post this week and it was sort of like, you know, parents confused while the one youth group hour a week isn't transforming their kid amongst the 30 cell phone hours. You know, this is the reality, but that's not just true for teenagers, that's true for all of us in all different ways. And what I wanna say is the secret behind spiritual practices, but behind godliness, this is the secret to what Jesus said is the easy yoke and the light burden. This isn't the hard way of Christianity. The hard way of Christianity is trying to respond like Jesus in your life without being transformed on the inside first. To try and muster up being love, that's the hard way. The light and easy way is to practice a way of life that means love comes out automatically. Matthew 11:28 28 says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? There's that word again. Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Oh, it feels so good. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live uh, freely and lightly. Or that's like a paraphrase version and more like the correct language. says: come to me, all who labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, that's my way of life, upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly at heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light look man it's easy to romanticize these words right it's like that that's got all of the words for our culture what's that are you tired yes are you burnt out a little are you worn out? Is, that just, is life feeling heavy? Oh you're, oh, you're speaking my language. It's like the TV's speaking to me, you know? It's like, it knows me. And it's like, oh, come to me. Oh, get away with me. Oh, walk with me. Walk. It's like, oh, this sounds so romantic. It sounds so nice. Oh, the unforced rhythms of grace. What, you're not gonna, make, you're not gonna force me? It's just gonna come naturally? That's what it sounds like. It's, we romanticize these verses but the reality of what they're saying is learn to live like Jesus lived, and you will find this whole Christianity thing a lot easier. And what it's not saying is learn to live like he lived in the moment, it's saying learn to live like he lived behind the scenes, and in the moment, it'll just flow, it'll flow. You know, the problem is that we think of spiritual practices Because we think it's religion versus relationship. So relationship is something you've got to vibe, right? And so we think Christianity is something we've got to vibe. And the problem is most of the week we're just not vibing it. It's easy to vibe it in here, but the moment we go home or the moment the alarm clock goes off tomorrow, it's harder to vibe it. And that's why we need to practice godliness because it forms the vibe. You know, we think of spiritual practices like the opposite to KFC. Yeah, I have to drive past KFC all the time, you know, because it's between here and my house. And uh, you know what KFC has going for it? The best smell of any takeaway food on the planet. It's like they're pumping that thing into a fan at the top of the thing and they're spreading. I can smell it from my house sometimes and I don't live that close to it. It's like... You know, it's hard to drive past, I think. Lucky there's a roundabout, you know? Because you drive past, you're like, oh, well, I'll just spin back around. This is easy. I'll get some chips. Oh, okay, maybe some wicked wings. If I'm really gonna splash out, it's gonna be a Zinger Burger. But KFC lures you in with the smell. You know, Subway's the opposite. Horrible smell, but okay food. KFC, great smell, great food at the beginning, but always filled with regret at the end spiritual practices work in the exact opposite way. They feel forced at the beginning. They feel like another have to. We feel like we're clumsy in them. We don't know really what to do. But if we stick with them, they become very pleasant on the other end, like choosing a salad as opposed to wicked wings. You're like, okay, but at the end, you're thankful for it. It's no different than kids learning to become adults when they have to learn how to make their lunch themselves. Initially it's clumsy and forced, but eventually it's a blessing to them and everyone else. Learning to clean their room starts off clumsy and you wonder if they even tried making their bed. It's like, it doesn't look made to me, but eventually it becomes a blessing to them and to their future spouse. So learning to work hard starts off as just something that's exhausting but eventually becomes something that's quite rewarding. We have to learn these things. Growing up is hard, but it sure beats the alternative of staying an infant our entire lives. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, the secret to following the easy yoke involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life, speaking of Jesus, adopting his overall lifestyle. Following in his steps cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot to live as Christ lived is to live as he did in all of his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us lived, or just as everyone around us does. So I want to say that we, to take following Jesus seriously is to at least suppose that's as it's as big a challenge as learning to play the violin or run a marathon. It's like this is the whole transformation of your way of being. It's gonna be as hard as at least learning an instrument. It's gonna be as hard as at least learning an endurance sport. It's gonna require a practice in something you're not used to. We don't, you know, no violinist just turns up in the concert hall and expects to be great. They grind away in the secret place so that one day they can hop up on the stage and it just all happens automatically. Yet many of us are just trying to hop on the stage of living a Christian life without ever getting in the secret place and doing the types of things that would mean it would come naturally one day. The practices, you know, this is part of the challenge. We're a charismatic church, you know. We come from a Pentecostal tradition and that's awesome and I love it. Who doesn't love just God turning up? But the problem is that the answer to everything in the charismatic church is you just need another moment with God. You just need another moment. You just need another touch of the spirit. You just need another filling. You just need another prayer. And like, that's cool. At times we do need that, but that's not the silver bullet to transformation. And part of our, you know, we don't have a rich history. We only have about 120 years of sort of, you know, movement history in that sense. But there's thousands, 2,000 years of church history of other parts that we can learn from. And I think part of the challenge is in the charismatic church, we've reduced spiritual practices down to a devotional time with God. Just have your devo time, just have your time in the Word, just have your prayer time. And if you just have that, it'll be easy. But most people that even master that realize that what you did at 7 a.m. is easily forgotten by 10 a.m. Like it has a way of evaporating and we go, well, I've tried that and it didn't really work. And it's because there's way more practices than just that one. And that's a great practice. And I love that we can look at like the contemplative tradition and some of the the more traditional church traditions that we can gain from them wisdom that our traditions don't have. And we can learn more. So I just wanna just... in a way of finishing, I guess, just give us an overview of some spiritual practices, hopefully enough intrigue that you might go, I'm going to go Google some of these or get a book about them and I'm going to start talking about them in my small group. I'm going to figure out is there some stuff we can try together or some stuff I can try. Does that sound good? And then we'll land the plane. The first thing I would say about spiritual practices is this, the first and most important spiritual practice is the practice of worship. Because worship makes all the other spiritual practices about God and not about you. The danger in our self-improvement society is that Christianity can just be another way for me to serve my self-improvement goals, but by making worship the first spiritual practice that we are engaged in, makes, makes sure it keeps all the others in check and makes them about God. The other thing I would say is sort of like a, you know, we'll just set up some bookends here. The other thing I would say is the point is not the spiritual practice. The point is to become a loving person that loves God more and loves people more. There's no point, if you master a spiritual practice, but you're still, uh, I shouldn't say the word, in church, if you're still, you know, not a nice person, you've failed because the point was something else, not the spiritual practice in itself. It's not a religious box to tick. So spiritual practices can be, one of they can sit in one of two camps. Generally, in our tradition, we only know of one of the camps. But the first camp is the one we don't know about, and it's probably it's the place to start. It's, they all fit in this uh, umbrella of practices of abstinence, practices of saying no to things, practices of getting things out of your life. And these would be solitude, silence, fasting, frugality. What does that mean? Just living on living more simply than what would be acceptable with the culture around you. Chastity, secrecy, sacrifice would be like some of the big sort of seven practices of abstinence. And practices of abstinence are really important because when you're really full of the world, it's really hard to put more God in you. When you're full of desires that are unchecked, when you're full of bodily urges, when you're full of you know, noisy community, You can read the word, but sometimes there's nowhere for it to go and stick in your soul. You can worship the Lord, but sometimes there's no room for it to get in and form something new. So we need practices of abstinence. They work like our body works. We breathe in and we breathe out. And you need to breathe out to be able to breathe in again because all the oxygen from your breath in has been converted to carbon dioxide and the, your blood can't absorb, carb, uh, can't absorb oxygen while it's still full of carbon dioxide. So it needs to be breathed out before you can have a breath in. And so if you just wanna see your uh, devotional life come alive in a new way, start with some abstinence and then watch how the other stuff, the engagement stuff comes alive in a new way because you got hungry for it. By taming your desire for food, you're making your body submit to your spirit, which is making it a servant of godly purposes in your life rather than you always, your spirit always being subservient to your body. You're getting things in the right order and you're learning to master these things through discipline and practice. Does that make sense? Some of you, maybe the richest thing you could do is just get 24 hours or 12 hours on your own. No phone, just solitude. I know as a parent, you're like, yes, please. Um, For me, I just need a moment of silence. (laughs) These sorts of things. Practice, and then practices of abstinence and then practices of engagement, which would be things like study and worship, studying the word, worship, celebration, service, like serving others, prayer, fellowship, confession, and submission. These are, there's more than just reading the word in prayer. You know, there's more for us to learn and explore about. So I don't know what sort of like, oh, that's getting me excited. I might press into that a little bit more. It's amazing in our world, and I have felt this a lot as a parent, and I'm sure other parents would feel this and everybody could relate, that there are so many pressures on us for what we think raising our kids well is. And what the expectations are from the over overwhel- from the culture around us about what being a reasonable modern parent is so i feel it you know raising four kids it's like well they're all supposed to have a team sport we live by the beach so they're all supposed to be surfers so i've got to take time to teach them that uh oh we've got to go on however many regular family holidays otherwise our kids are you know like not getting the quality time they need um, where they're supposed to you know, do well at school and if they're not doing well, they need extra tutoring and these sorts of things. Oh, they're supposed to go to university or get an apprenticeship and they're supposed to do these sorts of things. Oh, they're supposed to be at every child's birthday party. You no, know, whenever, whenever the invite is, we're supposed to prioritise that above everything else in our lives and make sure another present is bought. Then as an adult, you know, you're know you supposed to be fit and healthy and you're supposed to be at the gym and you're supposed to eat a good diet and you're supposed to read that book somebody recommended and you're supposed to listen to that podcast somewhere in your life that they recommended. And there's all this pressure of what it's supposed to be to live like a good life and to be a reasonable person and not be irrelevant to this world and not raise kids who are irrelevant to the world. And man, it's overwhelming. And I, I've felt the pressure as a parent And I've watched parents choose the wrong things because of the pressure. I've watched parents in our church feeling the pressure of these things. And I've seen them, you know, they just want to see their kids excel in sport or whatever, or surfing or whatever. And so they're traveling here and traveling there. They're giving up every weekend. They're spending the entire weekend on the sports field or at the beach. They're going to practices during the week. And before, you, if we really break it down, they spend all Saturday doing it. They spend all Sunday doing it because their kids are playing reps. They spend all Tuesday night at a practice. There's in all Thursday night at a second practice, Friday night for the reps team practice. And for what, for most kids, will be some fleeting enjoyment. And for a very few kids might be a short-lived professional career in the sport. And without realizing it, we taught our kids that all the things are of some value are actually of most value. And we taught them that all the things that are of most value are actually of little value. I felt the pressure. But we decided a long time in our family what was most important for us. Joshua says it in Joshua 24 as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And even though we had kids that were well excelling in their sports, we said no reps because that's on Sundays. And I know that's hard, but we're about something else on that day of the week. And you're just gonna have to, and one day you're gonna thank me for it because you're gonna have something that's of more value in your life. We said no to those things. And instead, we read scriptures around our dinner table. And we encourage our kids to memorize Bible verses for pocket money. (laughs) And we turn up to church every day of the week. Oh, every Sunday. Every day would be good. I'd sort of do. Ah, but you don't have to do that too. And I think, you know, each kid has to decide for their own, but at least I can know as a parent, I gave my time to training them and what is of most value for now and forever. And I think all of us need to have a look at our lives and go, physical training is of some value, sure. But godliness, training in godliness is valuable in every way. And are we living that lives and are we modeling that life to the people around us? your vibrancy, your maturity, your depth in God will never outgrow your personal spiritual practices. Church is great, but there's something it can't do for you. And that's dig a well for yourself. I think many people find themselves living their whole faith life secondhand rather than firsthand. You know what I mean? Secondhand is it has to pass through me to you, has to pass through the podcast to you, has to pass through a a prophetic word to you, Stop living secondhand. Develop spiritual practices to go to the source yourself and experience intimacy yourself. Hear a word for yourself. Be encouraged by the Lord yourself. And man, it will bless every part of your life.